Good morning. We move to a new chapter in 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And the theme of this chapter has to do with rights and uh, what we maybe have a legal right to versus or take it in light of what God wants us to do in regard to the welfare of the body. I got the timer started. Hopefully the recorders are started. We're all set. So 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5, title, Paul subordinates apostolic rights. So let's get right to verse 1. Paul begins here in this chapter with four rhetorical questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Those are the four questions. I believe each of these is rhetorical and that in each case, the implied answer is yes. Yes. Paul is free. He is an apostle. He has seen Jesus our Lord. And the church at Corinth exists because of Paul's work of the ministry as uh, spoken of in Acts chapter 18. So there is a dispute about this, and I'll lay that out there. As you know, Gordon Fee has received a lot of credit from me for teaching me what First Corinthians was about back in the late 80s when I first got his commentary, and it solved so many questions and problems that we were wondering about because of some of the things that we've been through decades before that that had to do with misinterpretation. However, on this particular incident, he has a view that others have questioned, and I'll tell you what that is. Fee's view is that what's at issue is whether Paul is an apostle, that the uh, Corinthians are challenging that he's an apostle, and that here we have an apologetic for his apostleship. However, having read four different uh, technical commentaries on this, it seems that really that doesn't that takes us a little bit away from the context. Let's go to the context. The context is chapter eight. We're agreeing that Paul's an apostle. Okay. I think the real issue is whether how he's proceeding doesn't call cause them to question some things about him. In chapter eight, the issue was knowledge, freedom, and rights. Some were claiming because of their superior knowledge, the elitists were claiming that they knew there's only one God, which we all affirm, the triune God of the Bible, and therefore, whatever the pagans were doing in their pagan temples of worship and the food they, that was sacrificed there was really of no spiritual uh, significance whatsoever, so therefore, they could, in their trade associations or friendships or whatever, go in there and enjoy the meal of food sacrificed to idols with the pagans. Paul is disputing that, and we'll see further in chapter 10, he really gets to the heart of it. At this point, he's dealing with rights. Paul has said, and let me cite uh, 1 Corinthians 8.13. Therefore, Paul said, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Not that Paul never ate meat again. He's establishing the importance of every single member of the body of Christ. And what's at issue here is even if something really is my freedom to do and my right, I still have another question to answer. Am I causing harm to my brother or sister in Christ that ought not to be caused? And that should I also think about love, the spiritual progress of people who are new Christians, 
possible offenses to Jew, Greek, or the Church of God, and things like that are also important. So we see that in 8.13. Now, the issue of free here, am I not free, will also come up later, 1 Corinthians 9.19. And I'll cite that for you, 1 Corinthians 9.19, later in this chapter. Paul said, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more in the context of not giving offense. So what this is about, in my opinion, though Paul later in chapter 15 will lay out his apostolic credentials again, is the fact that Paul is laying aside certain rights doesn't make him somehow suspect. He's laying aside those rights in order to be of benefit to his brothers and sisters in Christ and not cause some who may be new to the faith or weak in some sense to stumble. That's what chapter 8 was about. In chapter 9, Paul is uh, laying out what how that applies to him. I think there's something like 15 rhetorical questions in chapter 9. So get used to rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is one that you assume whoever you're speaking to would agree with the answer. In this case, am I not free? Yes, Paul's free. So I'm going to agree with Gardner and Thistleton and Siampa and Rosner, who think that that's the issue rather than whether he actually is an apostle or not uh, in the minds of the Corinthians. Gardner says, this is not a defense of Paul's apostleship, but the premise of the ensuing argument. Verses 1 and 2 are not a defense, as some have suggested. Rather, through four rhetorical questions and a strong assertion, he established the premise. And the premise is that he should and he is willing to lay aside rights for the benefit of his brothers and sisters. So we're talking about rights. The word for right, by the way, in the Greek, exousia, is the word for authority. But in this context, it means rights. Now, here's what's likely happening. Paul's willingness to lay aside the rights and there'll be many more as we go through chapter 9, is likely being used by the elitists in Corinth, whose big problem is comparing one to another to decide who's the greatest. I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Peter. Remember the, the issue, the status rivalry that's going on in Corinth. And so looking at Paul saying, well, you're kind of a weakling. Look at you. You ought to know better. You you can deal with this stuff. You don't have to withdraw. Uh, but the, and they may very well be using his willingness to give up privileges and rights against him to make him look worse in the eyes of others and therefore give them a chance to promote someone they think would be a better apostle for them uh, compared to him. And so that goes on in 2 Corinthians. Now, in the Greek, it kind of stands out when you look at it. There's four interrogative particles, and they are ook, ook, ooky, oo. <laughs> now you know Greek. <laughs> and am I not? Am I not? Have I not? Are you not? That's, that's those words. And uh, it kind of gets your attention. The word free, eulotheros, is an important word in the New Testament. And we know that freedom is something that Christ came to give us. Freedom from guilt and sin. Freedom from the wrath of God. Freedom from bondage to Satan. Freedom from fear and so on. And so Paul is indeed free. Now let's go to verse 2. I was talking about his apostleship and whether they should be looking for somebody better or more desirable. He said, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least to you I am. At least I am to you. For you are the seal 
of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, again, this would give weight to fees you. They're challenging whether he is an apostle, but the others, I thought, had a better reading. They're questioning whether he's as good as somebody else who may claim to be. And he pointing out what happened when he came to Corinth and preached the gospel. Some of this will come up in some of the things that he gave up as we go through chapter 9. You are the seal. Seal, uh, sragas, is a word that signifies valid attestation of authenticity. He's the real deal. He came there. He had the gospel. He preached the word of God to them. And some of the things that he did there, and actually I happened to print out Acts 18. You don't need to turn to all this. It would take too long. But he, he came from Athens where he preached at Mars Hill. And the co-workers, Aquila, Priscilla, who had come from Rome when Claudius kicked him out, Silas, Timothy, and so on, they spent a year and a half there. So that's in Acts chapter 18. So the final question here had to do with Paul's freedom and his apostolic ministry in Corinth. And because the church at Corinth owes its existence to Paul's ministry, they saw him work there. They saw him minister there. They saw him lay down his rights there and care for them there. And if you read First and Second Corinthians, you start to wonder, why are they like this? Why are they turning against him? Why are they questioning? It especially comes up in Second Corinthians. And nevertheless, Paul is indeed the apostle God sent to Corinth to bring forth a church there. At the very beginning of First Corinthians, he said this, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So from the very beginning, his claim is that he is indeed the apostle. The issue is right. So let's go to verses 3 and 4. And this gets to the heart of the matter. Paul subordinates valid rights, but he didn't use them for reasons that would benefit the gospel and the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 3 and 4. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Now, again, here's another rhetorical question. Applied answer would be yes. Yes. Right. Exousia. So this is like a legal situation, though it really isn't. Defense is... uh, Apologia, where we get our word for apologetics, and examine is anacrino, which would be the word crino to judge with a prefix. Side note, I, I find this of interest. I don't know if others do, but I have for some time. I think that Luke was influential in Paul's writing. Luke was very astute, very powerful in languages, as we know from the narrative unity of Luke Acts. And there are a number of words, vocabulary words in the Greek that are only found in Luke, Acts, and 1 Corinthians. And I think uh, some have said, well, Paul couldn't have written the love chapter, chapter 13. It's too eloquent. Too eloquent. But uh, they sell him short. And furthermore, he had help, in my opinion. Luke brilliant writer. Now, here are this word anacrino, examine, is found in Luke 23, 14, Acts 4, 9, you don't have to write all these down, Acts 12, 19, Acts 17, 11, Acts 24, 8, Acts 28, 18, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 2, 15, 4, 3, 4, 4, 9, 3, 10, 25, 10, 27, 14, 24, and nowhere else in the New Testament. I believe Luke highly uh, influenced Paul's ability to write in Greek and do so eloquently, even though it wasn't his primary language. That's my claim.
So anyhow, anacrino, these are legal terms. They examine something, put it under the microscope. What is going on? Is this right? So the critics are looking at Paul saying, who are you? You're not living like everybody else. And why are you not using the rights? You're obviously a weakling. You're not that great in our eyes. And uh, the elitists in Corinth claimed and exercised rights, including the right to eat food sacrificed to idols in the pagan temple with the pagans. And Paul hasn't even brought out the big guns yet that they're actually eating what's sacrificed to demons. That comes in chapter 10. We'll stick with what we already know. And... Um, Elitism is what the root of the problem is. We know in Luke there were several incidents where the apostles or the disciples were arguing, arguing with each other who was the greatest. And in each case, Jesus rebuked them. I would assert, based on the teachings of the New Testament, that this danger ever lurks in Christian churches. That it's our nature as fallen humans to want to determine who's the most important, who's the most significant. We like to keep score. We want to know who's the greatest. And as we've said throughout, including the key passage there that we examine, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, that's not our business. God knows who is serving and the value of that serving. And only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And only God knows um, who is the greatest. It's his business to determine that. It's our business to love, to lay down whatever rights we claim that might harm somebody, and to, by love, serve one another. And therefore, as Paul will say in chapter 12, if someone is being harmed or falling to the side to care for them and give greater honor to the member that lacks. And that'll come up in chapter 12. So um, Siampa and Rosner say this, the verse's greatest apologetic value would be for those who, says Rosner and his co-author, like the Corinthians, owed their Christian life to his ministry. The following verses, however, do explain why Paul refuses to carry out ministry for payment, preferring to preach the gospel for free. Verses 4 through 14, they say, suggest that at this point the Corinthians probably had no doubts about Paul's apostleship, but may have been baffled by his decision to use a self-supporting approach to his ministry. He worked at a trade and worked with his hands and took care of his own needs, lest some would say he's only in it for the money. So that's what we will see as we go on. When Jesus instructed his disciples, he said that the labor is worthy of his hire. So take note of these verses. I'll read them to you. Luke 10, 7 and 8. Luke 10, 7 and 8. It says this, when they were sent out, stay in that house, if you come to a house that has a place that would accept them, eating and drinking what they give you, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So Jesus himself said, the laborer is worthy of his wages. If you're ministering and people will take care of you, go ahead and receive that. And that was a principle. Paul was not doing that in the case here at Corinth. And it caused some of them to question whether he was even uh, right on. Maybe there's something wrong with him. He's not up to the standards of us elitists. But the point is different, and we'll see that 
when we get into Philippians and our application about the example of Jesus, that the Lord himself laid down his divine privileges, not his nature, in order to serve those who need him. And that there's something more important than our rights, and that is the well-being of the body of Christ. Now, there's other things to say about this, and we'll get to it as we go through the rest of 1 Corinthians 9, because there's a downside. Anything that is taught in the Bible, somebody can abuse it to harm themselves or others. We don't want that to happen. Let's go to verse 5. Here we get to marriage status, marriage. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which would be Peter. Now, this text isn't saying that all apostles were married, but that they had a right to be. Some obviously were. Paul was not. And the implication here is that if the apostles, the ministers were sent out and did have a believing wife, and I'll tell you how that comes out in the Greek in case you happen to read some discussion of it, because it's unusual terminology, that the implication is either the wife as a partner is also supported by the church, or she is helping support the worker. And I've known many cases like this, dear people, that uh, I just got to honor someone, uh, Oral and Ginny Steinkamp that we that we known who uh, were missionaries, some of the last out of Vietnam in 1975, then in Australia ministering, and together they ministered for decades. Oral was heartbroken when Ginny went to the Lord first, and I consider him a wonderful brother, and uh, that's how they ministered together. And they were supported together. So that is something Paul would consider right, but not something that he does. And it could very well be, because we have to read between the lines in Corinth, because there's uh, other letters that we don't have where they're disputing things. They're saying, well, look at you. You must be deficient. You don't have a wife. But that's not the way to look at things. Now, this term believing wife is an interpretation of the Greek <coughs> adelpe gune, which literally means a sister as a wife. Now, it doesn't mean someone married their sister, but it means a sister in Christ as a wife. And so, therefore, it's interpreted here, believing wife, which is the least confusing way to, to put it into English. So this would imply that the wife would work to support him or be supported with him by the church. Together, they did what they had to do. By the way, that's what Christian ministry looks like, doing what you have to do to survive. And uh, if it's a super profit, profitable career, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't think that's the goal. There's a lot of careers out there. But Christian ministry is about serving the body of Christ and caring for people and laying down your life. And it doesn't mean you have to take an oath of poverty. That's absurd. We're not supposed to take any oath. It doesn't mean we can't pay the bills. It simply means we're willing to live in what circumstances are necessary to bring forth the best Ministry that will help the body of Christ in whatever situation that could be. And sometimes it's about survival, I have to say. Sometimes it's about survival. Sometimes there are better times. But that's true for everybody. That's true for everybody. It's a battle to survive in this life, in this world, for every one of us. And for the whole body of Christ is about serving and doing what we can in a fallen world to the benefit of our family and to one another and to be there for one another as we're needed. Dr. Thistleton says this, 
whatever conclusions are urged about the scope of, and then he has the Greek here, uh, and I, I won't just quote that, and, and then whatever category, category we place, the brothers of the Lord, here is a very early Christian witness to the theme of Christian married couples traveling together for mutual companionship and vision in missionary or pastoral work unless a specific decision is made to the contrary or other circumstances prevail. We need to be flexible. You don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. And we don't know what's going to happen as we raise children. All these things are day by day by day issues and battles where we depend on the Lord. But what cannot happen, and but almost always does, is we start throwing darts at each other because somebody else doesn't look like they're doing it right. Oh, look at you. You must be a horrible preacher. You look at you. You must have really failed. Look at you. Look at this. Look at that one. And to survive it all is a battle. It's a battle. And when things go bad, it's not time to start making judgments we cannot make. But it's time to pull together in prayer and love and support for every single member of the body of Christ, whatever their role is. And the supreme example of the laid down life is found in Jesus Christ himself, which we'll do in our application. One more point. Notice the phrase, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Jesus had half brothers to the shock of Roman Catholic Church. Who really fumbles this badly? And uh, it says in Matthew thirteen fifty five, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? His brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. The Lord had half brothers. One of them wrote the book of James. I think you probably know that, but I wanted to get it out there. Let's get to some applications. The well-being of the Lord's flock is more important than rights. Number two, the Lord himself is the supreme example of subordinating his rights for the sake of the heirs of salvation. And frankly, I'll just put a little disclaimer out here before we get to it. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought, I have to go to Philippians, uh, knowing that when I do, I'm doing the one thing that I told Eric a long time ago not to do, create too many categories in one sermon. But we're going to cover one big category with some details, and that is Jesus' laid-down life, there, even though there's some issues that come up in Philippians. So the well-being of the Lord's flock and Jesus as the supreme one who subordinated his rights for the well-being of the heirs of salvation. Let's go to two verses. Ah, I got to confess my error here. When I made this, I didn't find this till yesterday. It, Philippians 3.17 really is one Philippians because there's only one Philippians. <laughs> but I introduced that error, and I didn't find it till yesterday. So uh, you won't go astray because you're not going to find second Philippians. It's not in the Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me just as also I I also am of Christ. So before the passage we're at in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's willing to lay down rights. The discussion earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 16 says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now think of that. The Corinthians are listening to elitist, super-apostles, hyper-spiritual ones, the pneumaticoi, are too spiritual for Paul. They have rights. They have knowledge. They know things. They're more socially uh, advanced or whatever. And so they're casting negative light on the very apostle who came and founded the church there. But so it goes. 
And he's saying be imitators of me. They don't want to do that because they can't. They're, they're trying to put him in bad light. But in, the, in what sense? In the sense of him being an imitator of Christ. And we'll see in Philippians what that means. Dr. Thistleton says the pattern is that of placing the welfare of the other before that of oneself. And in this sense, Paul himself takes Christ as his pattern rather than as a model of lifestyle in every respect. And one of the things I'm going to warn about as we go through this is we don't want to fall into the trap of, of Jesus as the moral example version of the atonement. We don't believe that. We believe in substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the only perfect one, God, from all eternity, and we'll see that in Philippians, who laid down his life in a saving way for others. But liberalism says he showed us how to be nice, uh, how to be good people, the moral example idea. That's not the point. The point is this, that in serving Christ, we shouldn't be shocked that some of this involves laying aside rights at times that are valid, if indeed at that point it's going to be for the benefit of others around us rather than what some of the elitists were doing in Corinth. So uh, Philippians 3.17, again, I, I apologize for putting one in front of it. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And in fact, you don't need heavy-handed, top-down, authoritative institutional structures to force every Christian to look the same, act the same, dress the same, do the same, give the same, in order to have this uh, view of, well, everybody's on the same page. That's abusive. That's abusive, and that sort of thing is uh, an air of trampling on freedoms. Paul is willing for people to be different. He's willing for people to have a wife, as Peter, and do ministry, or him to be single and do ministry. He's willing for diversity under the unity of Christ as Savior and Lord. So avoid the cult-like demand for utter conformity in every tiny little detail. That's not biblical Christianity. There is freedom. There is liberty. So the pattern isn't a detailed outline that covers every incident. It's an example of living for the benefit of the brother and sister in Christ even if that means you're rooting for a different football team. Nothing said about that. Not everybody likes football. Okay, Jesus subordinated divine rights. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. I'll have to cover some of this. Again, there's a lot of details in here, but we want the big picture. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men if you've studied theology you realize that this verse has been abused throughout church history in some very serious ways. And so uh, I can't teach it without at least dealing with some of the key issues, not losing sight of the big picture, that if Jesus subordinated the rights that he has as God the Son to become uh, tempted as we are, virgin-born, going through the things that he did for our benefit, it's not too much for us to lay aside our lesser rights for the benefit of our brother or sister in Christ, if that's what's necessary. So it says, have this attitude. That word 
needs to be explained. Attitude, phroneo, and it's in the imperative. It can't truly be translated into English uh, because attitude seems to be a noun, but it's actually a verb in the Greek, and it's in the imperative. And someone said uh, this, which means to develop an attitude based on careful thought. Let me say that again. To develop an attitude based on careful thought. What sort of thinking, posture, attitude toward life would be good as I would be a Christian in this world living with other brothers and sisters in fellowship? Develop this attitude, this kind of thought. The imperative could be called a mindset. Have this mindset. Have this mindset in yourselves based on something that's in Christ. Now, Christ is unique. He's the only one of his kind. He's the only begotten. He's the unique one. So no one's exactly like Christ, but analogically, we can be like Christ, sinners saved by grace, but yet have this mindset based on something in Christ. That's his exhortation. So another issue, there's no verb in the second part of the first phrase here, which was also in Christ. It doesn't have which was also. That's added. And so that causes different ways to translate this. Now, um, the NIV says this, the new NIV, Philippians 2.5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In relationships to one another, have the same mindset as in Christ Jesus. That's a good way of saying it. Sometimes English doesn't lend itself to the thoughts in the same way without adding some words. Uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Seeks to translate without adding an implied verb. So we are to have, in some sense, analogically, the attitude of Christ, and in what sense is that going to be? We're going to see that as we go on. Though he existed in the form of God, again, all these words are discussed in some detail. I can't do all of that in this sermon. Existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And boy, has that one been abused, and it still is. I have written about this. I've rebuked popular authors as heretics and utterly heretical to be avoided because they teach that Jesus emptied himself of divinity, that Jesus operated in his life as a mere man and not God, or that when Jesus died on the cross, he lost his divinity and became no more than mere man fighting Satan in hell and then had to become a born-again Jesus and so he's really no different than us fighting, fighting Satan. And these things are pernicious, they're popular, and they're found throughout popular books and media. They're wicked, they're evil, and they are damnable heresies because of this reason. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. God the Son, the preexistent one. God, the creator, believe in the triune God of the Bible. And in his incarnation, there are some mysteries. How can the creator of the universe be a baby? He's virgin born. He lives a sinless life. He does many miracles to prove he's God. And the false teachers say he's not doing anything that we can't do if we just don't get it right. So they want to diminish the deity of Christ. That's not the point of this kenosis. That's the Greek word. And we could call the false Christ a kenotic Christ. He did not empty himself of deity. It's not possible because that makes deity contingent. And deity is eternal, non-contingent existence. He emptied himself of 
certain prerogatives, and therefore I say subordinated rights. Paul didn't empty himself of apostleship by giving up certain apostolic rights. He subordinated those rights for the sake of the body in a greater way, in the ultimate way. Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the Son, the Creator, laid aside privileges he had, including the one of being judged, which is delayed to later. Why don't you call down fire? Why don't you judge them? But he came to save lives. And so he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped as maybe an allusion to the garden where the serpent says to Eve, you can be like God. What happened in the garden? Well, they decided they tried to grasp for deity and they got kicked out and they're alienated from God. But he took on the form. He didn't lay aside deity. He added the subordination of divine rights and took on the form of the doulos, the bondservant being made in the likeness of men. There's much to be said about this, and this is my application to help us understand what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians. Wouldn't it be great to just teach? I preached through this about 20 years ago, but I don't want to get lost in the details. I want to make sure we don't get anything wrong. Now, there's a hymn going on here, and I'll tell you that in a bit. Uh, Let me just say this. There is an important theological issue here inasmuch as some make this out to me, Jesus is our moral example rather than the one who did something for us, which we could never do for ourselves. We're rejecting that. But we do learn from his example to subordinate our human rights in some cases as appropriate for the sake of others. Here's a statement I have in my notes. Um, we must realize both the pre-existence of Christ as God and with God and the truth of the incarnation where Christ is fully human. The term form, morphe, is difficult to translate, but the point is the man Christ Jesus is also the eternal God who laid aside divine privileges to walk among us, retaining his divine status as God the Son. And so this is important. And um, there are, there's, I, I don't want to go into more details and lose the big point. Jesus served humans who hated him. He forgave sinners who despised him and cursed him. He laid down his rights as judge of the universe in order to live amongst sinners and offer forgiveness, redemption, freedom, hope, atonement. And yes, he could have summoned thousands of angels and ended it all when the wicked ones attacking him. But he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Let's go to verses 8 and 9 in this um, section of Philippians. Beautiful section, by the way. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Name, the Hebraic way of thinking it, isn't just a certain personal identifier so you know who you're talking about. Name signifies the person, the character, the very being of the one who bears it. Christ, ha Christos, the anointed one, means he's the Messiah, the only true anointed one, the unique Messiah. There's other names of God 
that he reveals in the Bible, including in the Old Testament. So this is signifying his being, the essence of who Christ is, the glorious one, the holy one, the creator, also the slave, the doulos, the bondservant, the substitute, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So much of it is in here. Uh, I have a statement I wrote in my notes to share with you. What is signified in this magnificent Christ hymn is the very doctrine of Christ we preach when we proclaim the gospel every Sunday. Church history is filled with heresies based on the misuse of some of these phrases by grounding them in philosophical speculation rather than the biblical doctrine of the deity and humanity of Christ. I'm not saying the truth wasn't articulated in church history. Some of the early creeds are fantastic. And they talk about the hypostatic union, the, the, the nature of Christ. And I don't want to belittle some great work that's been done. But beware, we don't want to blaspheme our Lord. We don't want to belittle our Lord. But we want to learn what God wants us to learn. Dr. Fee says the divine weakness, death at the hands of his creatures, his enemies, is the divine scandal, says Fee. The cross was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. No one in Philippi, uh, we must remind ourselves, used the cross as a symbol for their faith. There were no gold crosses embossed on Bibles, worn as pendants around the neck, or lighted on the steeple of the local church. I'm quoting Dr. Fee here. The cross was God's, and thus their scandal. God's contradiction to human wisdom and power. That the one they worshipped as Lord of all, including Caesar, who claimed that, by the way, had been crucified as a state criminal at the hands of one of Caesar's proconsuls. Who is Lord of all? Jesus Christ, whom we worship, the creator, the savior, the sinless one, the holy one, the coming one, the one who calls us to believe on him. There's a question about whether there's a hymn here. And I looked at this in the Greek and I saw three words that rhyme so beautifully that are used to talk about things Christ did or were done. And those words, I'll try to get them right here in the Greek. A kano sin, a tape no sin, and so sin. All of them sound the same. A kano sin, a tape no sin, so sin. And they rhyme. Now, what are those three rhymes? That's why it's called Christ hymn. What are they saying? They're all in the aorist active indicative, and they mean emptied, humbled, elevated beyond. Emptied, humbled, and then elevated beyond. And I think it's only right to call that a Christ hymn with this beautiful alliteration and rhyme in the Greek. And I wish that I had the rhetorical skill to do justice to this material. It's so magnificent. But at the least we can learn that what he did makes whatever would be required of us to be only our honor to in a minor, minor way walk in the footsteps of our master to serve his precious flock and to care for one another. And those elitists in Corinth did not get this whatsoever. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paul. So I'm the greatest. You're miserable. You don't know what I know. You don't have the spiritual power I have. You don't have the gifts I have. You don't have the freedom I have. I can go right into the pagan temple, eat with the pagans, won't hurt my spirituality one bit, and I can come out and I can still be the greatest, and I can do business, and thus to you, Paul, you're pathetic. That's the Corinthian elitist, but that's not the attitude that was in Christ Jesus 
who gave his life for all. Let's look at the gospel more fully as we look at our last verses. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Everyone ultimately will give glory to God. Everyone, even those who hated him. Some will give glory to God now by confessing him as Lord and Savior and serving him and honoring him for who he is by trusting in his finished work. I've already explained what it is. His death for sins, his resurrection, his exaltation to heaven, that he hears us and hears every prayer because of his omniscience and his ability to answer because of his omnipotence and to show love to us because he's a loving Savior and intercedes for us. And through the Spirit, gives us access to the Father. And at one time in the future, every knee will bow, whether willingly because that they were so honored to see our Lord or in dutiful submission of the enemies who hate him because they have no choice. But every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Today, as you hear the gospel, and you think about these things, I pray that more of us, maybe some have heard this and never came to Christ. Maybe today, more will say, this Christ is truly who he claimed to be. He's the Savior. He died for sins. I'm a lost sinner. I failed God in many ways. And I deserve whatever wrath God has on my life. But I turn to Christ. And I turn from serving Christ, serving self to serving Christ in order to flee from the wrath to come. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he offers is forgiveness of sins, redemption, and the promise of eternal life. So together we can be glorifying him in heaven and on earth at the very end. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that you've allowed us to look into things that are so profound that they challenge us, but yet inspire us with hope. Pray, Lord, for those who are suffering in our midst, that you'd bring hope and comfort to each one. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as there's been a horrible onslaught against the Jews because of their being recipients of promises. And Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we do pray that you'd give our leaders wisdom uh, so that we can live peaceably on the earth as we proclaim the gospel. And we do pray, Lord, that we continue to lift all of our needs before you, knowing that you're the one who cares for us. Thank you, Lord. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.